Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, let's look at verse 21. We'll get down to about 25, 26. And then the next time we're together, there'll be a bit of overlap. Uh, but let's look at verse uh, let's look at verse uh, 19 for our context of Romans chapter 11. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were and were grafted contrary to nature and to a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And we'll stop there for our reading this morning. And God bless the reading of his word. Uh, as we look at this text this morning, and we begin in Romans chapter 11, verse 21. Uh, we are confronted with a series of questions that have led us to this point in the text. And I want to point those out to you because the way that Paul uh, writes, the way that Paul teaches, especially concerning this topic, is he puts forward questions that would tie us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. What is being developed from his standpoint as New Testament canon or New Testament scripture. And so he asks a series of questions. And first in verse one here in chapter 11, that is, I would say, the first question that he asked with regard to the overall context. And I want to put it out uh, there for you. He says, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? So that that would be the first question that Paul, the apostle, asked. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? And then he begins in the verses that follow. He begins to deal with that question. He begins to answer that question. And then in, first, in verse 11, a new question that builds upon the first question he asks. I say then, they, speaking of Israel, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? So much like the first question he asked, very similar to the first question he asked, he then asked a second question. And that second question is certainly more detailed than the first because he's going to get in specifically to, well, God has not overall rejected his people at wholesale and they have indeed fallen. But have they fallen in such a way where they have fallen away for good? So that's the next question. And then so Romans 11 in its context is then a continuation of Paul's point in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And I want to I want to show that to you this morning. So it's a continuation, Romans 11, a continuation of the point that he's making in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 and 14. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And then in verse 15, he says, how will they preach? Unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And we've discussed this text. We talked about Romans chapter 10. Uh, we have studied it. We have preached uh, through it. Uh, but it does set the table for what is to come in Romans chapter 11. And namely, it deals with this issue. How will the Jews and the Gentiles be saved and who will be sent to them? With the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, how will the Jews and Gentiles be saved? And then who will be sent to them with the message of salvation in Jesus Christ? 
And then in Romans chapter 10, verses 18 to 21, if you look at verse 18, he says, after he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And then in 18, he says, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? And then he goes to say, well, indeed they have, they have heard. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. He's talking about all the nations outside of Israel comprised of Gentile nations. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate, overly stubborn people. That is essentially what obstinacy is. And so he deals with in that particular context. I'm kind of setting the table as we push forward from Romans 11 into chapter 12. But he deals with the stubbornness of Israel as they disobeyed the Lord. And how they ignored the testimony of faith in Christ as well as the Lord's commandments in the Old Testament. So Paul is dealing with their stubbornness. And he's saying we can't deny that they were stubborn, but we have to account for the fact that some of them are going to be saved. And it won't be by their own doing. And here's the thing. It never was by their own hand. And so now we are back to our context. I felt like that was necessary because that pushes us into, well, what is Paul saying as we reach verses 21 and beyond? What questions is he trying to answer? What is he dealing with specifically? And so we are back to our context. You remember when we began Romans, we discussed the overall argument from Paul the Apostle. As I believe the entire epistle, the entire letter is centered around this particular context. And that is important because he has not only been answering the question since the beginning of Romans, but here next in our passage, he goes to the main theme, the main purpose explicitly. Like he literally almost repeats it. So let's look to Romans chapter three, verse five to seven, just quickly, because that is what gives us the context for what he is about to say in the verses that we're in this morning. So Romans 3, we learned the overall argument that all of Romans is devoted to. And we're just going to take a peek at it because we are back to our context. But it's a match, a one for one match for our context for verses 21 to 25. If we look at Romans 3, you remember the indictment. But I want to center in on a couple of verses. Verse 5 of chapter 3. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, here's the point that you want to pick up. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? The question isn't how will God save the world? The question is how will God judge the world? Because if we serve the God who saved everyone, for one, that's not possible because we serve the true living God. But if we did, if we serve the false God that people construct that saved everyone, then there would be no reason to answer this question or to deal with distinctions or to deal with Jews and Gentiles. And everyone would really approve of that type of lowercase g, God. Everyone would approve of a God who saves everybody, no matter what you do. Everyone would approve. But Paul is saying that's not what's at stake. What's at stake is people are trying to charge God with injustice, that he's an unjust God because he's only saving some. So Paul assumes that that's the case. And he assumes that that's the case for the Jews. And he assumes that that's the case for the Gentiles. So he says our unrighteousness is met with righteousness. He doesn't say it the other way around. He doesn't say our righteousness is met with unrighteousness. No, that is what accusers are saying. They're saying that, well, we're righteous and somehow God's not fair. No, Paul's saying we're unrighteous and God is perfectly righteous. So how can it be that he can save some and yet he can judge others? And that's 
exactly what he says. How will God judge the world? Then he says, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And then it goes to what people were accusing them of in verse eight. And why not say as we are slanderously reported. So people are going around and slandering Paul and his ministry and saying, well, this is what real, this is what Paul really means by what he says. Slanderously reported and some claim that we say we're not saying it. They're claiming we say this. Let us do evil that good may come. So they're claiming that's what Paul is teaching and that that is what God will accomplish in people that you can do whatever you want. God will save you. Paul saying, no, God's going to judge the world and God should judge everybody. But he saves some. Now, on what basis does he save those whom he has elected to his salvation? And so that is a match, literally, uh, to our text this morning. Essentially, it answers this question. This is the question that I believe is occupying our minds as we walk through Romans, whether it's in, in an indirect way or more direct way. But here is what it is. And you can word this any way you want. But here's kind of how I think about it. How can God both be just and justified? How can he be just, just in his judgment, just in his wrath? And how can he also justify? How can he declare unrighteous people not guilty? Now, we talk about that all the time, but that is what is at stake when we look at all of Romans. But specifically, when we approach Romans three, Paul raises it and then. He's making concluding arguments in our text this morning, and then he'll work out the implications of how do we then, because God is both just and justifier, how do we then serve one another in that context? So that's what he's dealing with in chapters 12 and beyond. But looking to where we are this morning, he deals with that. How can God be both one who condemns and one who liberates? Because he is. He is the God who condemns and he's also the God who liberates. We make no apology for that. And yet he does so. Listen to this. He does so while maintaining his perfect justice. He does so while maintaining his perfect justice. And you can say perfect holiness and you can say perfect goodness. But he does so most of all because what the argument against Paul was is, well, you're you're teaching a God who is actually unjust, unfair. And so Paul's saying, well, God is not too lenient and God is not unjust, but he's perfectly just. And yet he can condemn and liberate on the basis of his good pleasure. So the overarching question that we raise way back in chapter three is now revisited after all the arguments have led us here. So we'll get to uh, verse 21 and we'll look at verse 22. But if you look at verse 21, now that we're back in Romans 11, he says, he says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And so this whole thing is set upon a condition. It's set upon a condition. And I want to help you understand that condition. It's of what ought to be the case. That is, the Gentiles should persevere. And it is what they ought to do in the power of God. There's a sense of oughtness or shouldness. But if they do not persevere and give evidence to their salvation in Christ and by God the Father, then they should not expect to be spared. If they don't persevere, they should not expect to be spared. And so you see how that is a direct answer to Romans chapter 3, specifically verses 5 to 7 and 5 to 8, where Paul is answering these slanderous charges. If you don't persevere in the faith, you should not expect to meet with God's righteousness. Instead, there will be judgment. Paul says that there will be judgment. And so this must not cause arrogance, but humility, because they will meet with the same wrath. They being us among the Gentiles as unbelieving, rebellious Israel, if we do not persevere in the faith. So there's no different expectation. You know, people want to charge those of us who teach what I'm saying this morning as being guilty of holding forward two salvation plans that are distinct from one another. 
I don't know if you've ever heard people say that before and accuse you of that, or perhaps you've heard the accusation in general. At all, when you teach that there's an Israel, a remnant Israel, you're teaching that God has one salvation plan for Israel, and you're teaching that God has one salvation plan for the church. But that's not true. And I would say that the way that these individuals function is they truly believe, they truly believe that they can escape the judgments of Israel while committing the sins of Israel. So how can you say that we're teaching two salvation schemes when you're acting as though there are two salvation schemes? You can't commit the same sins of Israel and expect to escape the judgments of Israel. And that's what Paul is saying. That the salvation terms are exactly the same and you recognize them not simply on the basis of salvation, but on the basis of wrath. Because the same God will condemn everyone for the same reasons. He is consistent. And so then Paul puts forward to us that these this this truth, this reality is set upon two perfections of God specifically. All of them inclusive, but two specifically that he brings forward. So he's not simply saying the two that I'm about to mention are the only two in play. He's saying God is who he is, and he is a complete set of all of these uh, of all of these uh, uh, functions, of all of these perfections operating all together at maximum capacity. That's what makes him who he is. But he's also saying these two are the two that of that are of great emphasis. And so first he deals with uh, let's look at verse 22. He says, behold, then first the kindness he deals with the kindness of God or his benevolence, his goodness. And then he deals with his severity, that God is a God of wrath. And then he gets specific in what he means by that. He's not simply saying that God is a God of wrath and we have no idea when that wrath will take place. Because when people construct their idols, typically their idols have no reason for acting as they do because it's simply man conceiving of how man would act. But here, Paul is very specific. He says, behold, then the kindness and severity of God. And he doesn't just leave it there so that you think in your mind, well, what does he mean by kindness and severity of God? He explains it. To those who fell, severity. They fell, they met with God's severity. It wasn't that God caused them to fall and then somehow we're explaining that as severity. No, he's saying that God met them with his severity. They fell, God judged them. But to you, listen to this, God's kindness. Now that's the active part of it. It's not that you attain righteousness. Oh, and God is kind. You know, people do whatever they want in this life and they say, well, God is good because, you know, it just seems to be a good result for me. That's not that's not the God we worship and serve. No, God is kind because we deserve wrath. We deserve severity. We are we are indeed fallen until he grants to us the new birth. And so you are met with God's kindness in the active sense. If you continue, look at this. If you continue in his kindness. That little line is probably taught the least in the modern confessing evangelical church. If you continue in his kindness, it's not I have a nice, solid testimony that's well polished and I continue to speak about that. I mean, my life is in shambles. I treat people arrogantly. I do whatever I want to do. I sin as I want to sin. And yet somehow God is good. God is kind. The Lord is with me. All the phrases that people say. No, this says if you continue in his kindness. And we know that because here we study the word of God, not only in that sense, but we study these books. And if you look at Hebrews, I believe that that line pretty much captures Hebrews. Continue in his kindness. Well, what happens if I don't continue in his kindness? Well, then all these consequences of judgment, both now and eternally, will be those that you are partakers of. And so it is this idea to continue in his kindness. And if I'm not saying it explicitly enough, Paul is. Look at verse 22. He says, otherwise, you also, you also will be cut off. Well, he takes their arrogance away from him. He takes the Gentiles' arrogance away from him. He says, if you don't continue in his kindness, 
you're looking at the Jews from a, a, a context of failure and saying, well, us Gentiles, now we have God's kindness. The Jews failed. No, he says, if you if you commit the sins of Israel, of disobedience, of rebellion, of everything, even what we read in Leviticus 18, the perversions, if you do that, you can expect to meet with God's severity and his judgment and you will be cut off. Oh, well, that's that's hate teaching. No, that's love teaching. That's love teaching because Paul is giving a remedy. He's saying this is how you continue in God's kindness. This is how you avoid God's wrath. Well, I don't want to hear that. Well, no. Well, I love you. So I told you now you can you can chart the course that you want to chart, but it won't be because I have blood on my hands. When you hate someone, you have blood on your hands because you didn't warn them, you didn't tell them, you didn't say anything. But that's not Paul. Paul is saying, listen, if you continue in his kindness, I'm dealing with the Gentiles. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. Because you didn't get here by your own hand. You got here because God is kind. And in thinking about this. Just as we pause and really look at this verse, I think about how many times I've heard people who want nothing to do with God say God is good. And I think about how many times I forgot to say if we continue in his goodness. And I believe that that is a worthy response in the time in which we're in. Now, sure, that will upset people because their view of God is, you know, that God is just a benevolent grandfather who looks the other way when we do the things that don't please him. But that's not the case with Israel, and it's certainly not what Paul is saying here about the Gentiles. He's saying you have to continue in his kindness. That sounds a lot like the righteous barely make it in. The righteous barely make it in because you are altogether in Christ avoiding his severity. Not based on you, based on his power, but the evidence of that is what? I continue in his power. I continue walking with him. I continue in his kindness. So Paul is saying, I don't get to wag my finger at Israel because they failed and develop a system and say, well, we've arrived. We've arrived because we have a title. We've arrived because we made the announcement that we've arrived. So Paul is saying, continue. You must continue to chart that course through his kindness, through his benevolence, through his goodness, or you will be cut off. He doesn't say you'll get to try this again. He says you'll be cut off. He's going to cut you off. And then he says, listen, he goes to the positive. He goes to the positive because if you think before in our context, the Jews were prone to say, well, that's not fair. You're going to turn away from us and deal with Gentiles. That's not right. Of course, it's right. Of course, it's fair. In fact, fairness is judgment. But this is mercy. So, of course, it's right and fair and proper and perfect for God to turn away from the Jews and begin to deal with the Gentiles. Well, why? Because he gave so many warnings. That's what Paul says. But also, in case the Gentiles begin to say, well, whoa, wait a minute. What is happening here that we're going to be cut off and we're, we're here? Well, then he goes to the positive. And all of this is to keep Jews and Gentiles humble in their salvation. It's to keep them content because a part of continuing in God's kindness is to be humble before God It's to be humble before. Him. It's never to think I attain to this by my own hand. It's never to celebrate God's achievements as your own. It is God has brought me here. God has charted my course. God has saved me. God has equipped the people under my care to do what they do. God has established within them a heart for him, a love. God, God, God. You just hear God, God. Wherever you hear man, you hear arrogance. When you keep hearing God over and over, there should be humility attached to that. And that's what this is meant to do. That's what it's meant to do. Well, why? Because Paul moves positively. Look what he says. Even in studying this, you expect him to just go into wrath. Like 23 and beyond, I'm going to keep hammering wrath, which is right for him to do. But look at what he says. And they also. Well, they also what if they do not continue in their unbelief, he turns it, he flips it. If they do not continue in their unbelief, we'll be grafted in. God will bring them back. How can God do that? Well, God does as he pleases. 
That's what he chooses to do by the perfect counsel of his own will. It says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God, for God, for God is able to graft them in again. God is able to graft them in again. God can cut off whom he pleases and God can graft in whom he pleases. So all these ideologies that are lazy and clumsy, and some of them are sophisticatedly clumsy. And a word I like to say is academically trifling. Some of them come up with all these ideologies to attack the simplicity of what's written here because they don't want to deal with what Paul says for God. God can graft them in again. You mean to tell me that God can save an Israel? Yes, because he's God and he can do it as he pleases. You mean to tell me that if I continue in disbelief that God will cut me off once and for all? Yes, because it's God. That's what God will do because it's him. He does as he pleases. And the terms are very, very clear. No one will arrive before him, before the throne and say, you know what, God, I didn't understand. You weren't clear. No, perfectly clear. That's why I often say in judgment, sentencing is not a time to state your case. Sentencing is a time to receive the sentence for the crimes committed. You've done the crimes, the crimes are proven, now you receive the sentence. But in mercy, it's all the charges against me have already been resolved. They've already been taken. I need not plead my case because I have Christ who already plead my case. I'm hidden in him. That's where Paul is getting us to. But God, he says, God is able to graft them in again. Oh, you believe that the Jews are going to be grafted in again and all the sophisticated quotes. And all. Yes, because God is able to do it. We don't believe God is able. You have people preaching a gospel that God can save Gentiles, but they don't believe that God can graft in Israel. I mean, that's a weak lowercase g God that they're preaching. They're not preaching the one true God. Then. That is what is at stake. That God is able to graft them in again. Now, it doesn't say he's going to graft in people who are disobedient and rebellious. It says that he is going to graft in those who meet with his kindness and they continue in his kindness. That's who he's grafting in. He's choosing those who deserve nothing and granting them his eternal salvation and perseverance of the saints. But look at this. God is able to graft them in again. For if you were, you, he's talking to Gentiles, he's talking to us. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature. So he's saying it was natural. It was natural for you to be cut off. That's what was your natural condition. You being grafted in was contrary to nature. But when we talk about being grafted in as a euphemism, as an understanding for salvation, election of the Gentiles, we understand that there is nothing really natural about that, that that is supernatural, that that is something divine. That is something outside of ourselves that we can't bring ourselves to. And so he's saying you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. The tree was already cultivated. It was growing. It was strong. It had roots. It was well-nourished. And he says, you, you didn't belong to that. You were wild. You weren't native to it. And then he says, well, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? It's their tree. And I can bring them back into the tree. And not only can I, I will. That's what Paul talks about given this passage. I will. And so if you look at this, you see that you see that the Israelites who fell, who fell away, because there are some who fell away once and for all. They were eternally judged. They met with the severity of God in his wrath. He says that you can look all throughout the Old Testament. The judgments that fell upon those 
who were rebellious against the Lord. You can look in the Pentateuch of the Torah. You can look all the way through the prophets, the writings. You can just see it for yourself. And you can understand. But those who fell. And there's warnings of that judgment through the prophets. There's warning of warnings of that judgment through God himself. But for those who were saved by God's gracious choice. There's that word. That word even shows up in our context. Those who were saved by God's gracious choice. Not by what they did. Not by their performance. Not being at the right place at the right time. They met with God's kindness. They met with God's kindness. I would say the origin of something, the creation of something, takes great effort. It does. You launch something. You launch an endeavor. You launch a business. You work hard with your hands. You have an idea. You're trying to creatively bring people together. It all requires effort. And from that effort, you receive some kind of reward. Well, what I've just described is not salvation. Salvation is you don't do anything at all in your fallen state except earn condemnation. And then by God's kindness, by his election, by his perfect righteousness, you are brought near. You don't labor and work for your salvation. But to maintain your standing in him, you must work hard. And it's not the working that is, oh, the effort of works righteousness. No, it is the good works given to you to uh, demonstrate your salvation. I get that from Titus. I get that from Timothy. I get that from Paul's writings. So my point in saying that is that it's nothing that the Gentile is achieving by his own hand to bring about his salvation. And why do I mention it that way? Because I believe that today the great plague... The true pandemic that really plagues the modern evangelical setting and everything, every false religion, but the modern evangelical so-called church is that if you look at this like it's transaction, if you look at salvation like it's a transaction, I give a little God gives back. I rate a little God rates on the scale. You know, I build it. The people come. God will be pleased. If you look at this as transaction, if you look at it like a business, and what will happen is you will fall one way or the other into works righteousness. Somewhere along the line, as you're marching forward in what you think is a walk in Christ, you will either impose that standard on yourself as the model of righteousness or you'll impose it on others. My point in saying that is none of continuing God's kindness is talking about works righteousness. It's talking about persevering with divine works that have already been given to me in my salvation. So Paul called them, the Gentiles, and us. He called us to this kindness with the threat of being cut off in judgment, just like unbelieving Israel. But listen, that's an encouragement. Well, how's that an encouragement? It's an encouragement because it gives you a standard with which to measure your spiritual condition. Am I continuing in the goodness of God? Are you continuing in the goodness and kindness of God? And so when he flips it to that positive, he's talking about the Gentiles being grafted in with Israel as partakers with them in salvation. Remember, we talked about that last time together, that the Gentiles are partakers with the Jews in this salvation. So as in verse 24, as the Gentiles consider their own salvation and the miracle of such, because salvation is a miracle, we must consider the salvation of the Jews, for it will occur in the same manner of grafting as we studied in verses 16 to 18. This grafting is bringing pieces together that are not native to that which exists. In the case of the Jews, they are native. In the case of the Gentiles, we're not. But nowhere does God say this, because many men are saying this. But God doesn't say, forget all this, plant a new tree. Let's just plant a new tree. Let's just come up with an ideology that fits what we see today. Because overall, uh, after all, let's walk by sight. Let's just forget faith. Let's walk by sight. Let's create a new system. 
And I say that because that's what people are doing. Let's plant a new tree and let's call it, I don't know, let's call it the church. But let's not talk about Israel. Let's not mention any distinctions according to God's timeline. Let's just say it's the church and only the church. And at no time will God deal with this remnant Israel that people speak of. Let's fast forward because that's what people are doing. But God doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that speaking for God. He doesn't say let's plant a new tree. Nor does he so blend Israel and the Gentiles. Listen to this. He does not so blend Israel and the Gentiles that we cannot tell who his people Israel and who the Gentiles are. He doesn't so blend them together that you and I can't look at this text and go, okay, wait, who's he talking? Israel, Gentiles, who's he referring to? Paul doesn't do that. He maintains the distinction between them, not in their salvation plan, because there is no distinction in their salvation plan. Saved by grace through faith in the New Testament by Christ. By his finished work in the Old Testament, by the faith that looks forward to say the Messiah is coming, demonstrated by these sacrifices and offerings that show faithfulness to God and agreement with his covenant and his plan and obedience. But he maintains the distinction not in their salvation plan. They're both saved by grace through faith, but in their identity and in the timelines. Paul maintains the distinction in their identity and the timeline. He says this will approximately happen at this time. This will approximately happen at this time. This will happen to the Jews. This will happen to the Gentiles. I mean, you have to to think about how irreverent and destructive it is to blend these things together so much. I mean, even just in our simple thoughts. And the simple faith that we come to this text in. I mean, there's there's different words for Israel and different words for the nations, for, for the Gentiles. And my point is, Paul explains the differences. It's not simply using different words to explain things. He explains, here are the differences. And then even when he wants to talk to one and not the other, he goes, okay, Jews, I'm talking to you. All right, Gentiles, now I'm speaking to you. So we have to maintain that distinction in identity and timelines, not for the purpose of pitting both against each other. It's not what Paul is doing, but to understand when God's plan working together as it does demonstrates humility in us and demonstrates God's kindness and his severity. So then Paul refers in verse 25, he refers to this as a mystery. A mystery. Now that doesn't mean we can't figure this out, so let's end there. Let's close the Bible because none of us really knows. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, if you look at verse 20, uh, let's look at verse 23 again. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And then in 24, he says, for you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. And were grafted contrary to nature. Into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And then he says this. Look at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be misinformed, to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, he's about to tell you what the mystery is because he doesn't want the brethren to be uninformed. So it's not a mystery in the sense that we just we don't know. It's humble for us to say we don't know. Let's just agree to disagree. Let's create a system that just prioritizes doctrine so that there's things we don't have talk about, have to talk about and we can keep making money. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not a businessman. Praise God. And he's not a pragmatist when it comes to the word of God. For he himself said, I did not peddle these things. But I will tell you this. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. Well, now he's about to explain the mystery. But first, he has to explain the purpose. He has to explain the consequence of being uninformed. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. But hold on. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So he gives you the purpose. That's not the mystery. He's giving you the purpose that... Hey, I want you to be informed because if you're not informed, you'll become wise in your own estimation. And we have a whole lot of folks 
running around who are wise in their own estimation, especially on this very important theological issue. All of them are important. But people are wise in their own estimation. Instead of taking the time to study it and explain it, they just give you an arrogant, eloquent and arrogant uh, explanation of it. But I'm saying that's not what should be the case. So in the in the New Testament, when this phrase is used, I want you to understand uh, something we've talked about in the past. But it speaks to that. Very important. It speaks to that which was once concealed, but now is revealed. So when the mysterion is used in the New Testament, it is speaking about that which is concealed, but now is revealed. So this issue was settled about 2000 years ago. Give or take this issue was settled about 2000 years ago. The issue at the Jerusalem Council concerning Gentiles and what Gentiles should do concerning eat, uh, concerning food, concerning fellowship. That issue was settled 2000 years ago. I remember someone coming up to me and getting upset because I was eating pork and you can eat what you want. And they were just they went on this whole tirade and were misquoting scriptures. And the only mention I to say is my answer to them was, please read Acts. I believe it's 15. That issue was settled 2000 years ago. So we're not dealing in the realm of mystery and trying to figure out what everybody believes and thinks. These issues are settled. And my point is, this issue is settled. We're not trying to settle it today. It's settled. And so the mystery was once concealed, but now it's revealed. Whereas in the Old Testament, from that timeline, so it may take a mystery in the Old Testament that is later revealed in the New Testament. But as we're looking at it historically and grammatically, we're going that issue has not yet been resolved in its Old Testament context. It will be resolved in the epistles. It will be resolved in the Gospels. So when mystery shows up in the Old Testament, it is that which is to be revealed at a later time. When it shows up in the New Testament, it is typically something that is being revealed in the time in which Paul mentions it. The mystery of godliness, the mystery concerning Jews and Gentiles, the mysteries that take place concerning the salvation with which angels long to look. Those are mysteries that are now revealed. They're revealed, they're settled. And so when we look at that, when we look at that, Paul refers to this mystery as being revealed. And he says that a partial hardening, this is the mystery that's revealed. It's no longer concealed. The partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's a part of the mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Not a whole hardening, a full hardening at wholesale. It is a partial hardening to some. Well, how long is that going to take place? Paul answers that because the mystery is now being revealed. And it's not so much Paul revealing the mystery. It is the Holy Spirit revealing the mystery. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But it also gives you context as to all the times in the Bible where Gentiles are mentioned to the Jews. or There is some tension between Jews and Gentiles and the Jews respond less than favorably. They either kill the person, they get upset, they get angry, they try to uh, convene a council. My point in saying all that, all that is the mystery is not yet revealed at that point. Now, from the Old Testament standpoint, they knew the basis. I need to go out and I need to win Gentiles to Yahweh. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. But here Paul is saying, well, because you didn't do that, there's a partial heart. For those of you who will be at a later time, your salvation will be made manifest. But then he says, but there's a time stamp on this until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When all the elect Gentiles are saved, not when all the Gentiles are reached. A lot of people talk that way in so-called missiology. Missiology. They say, well, we just got to reach all the Gentiles to speed up the clock. No, when all the Gentiles whom God intended to save are saved. 
The timeline you and I are familiar with comes to us in the Bible in Revelation and in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24 specifically. But if you look at that timeline, that would agree with the end of the church age. We studied Daniel together. If you look at the timeline, the end of the church age is the fullness of the Gentiles. We're not in the fullness of the Gentiles now. So you have people who listen to this. Just listen to the illogical nature of this. You have people who are saying, how dare you teach these things concerning Israel? You're going overboard. And they're saying the fullness of the Gentiles is here. But they're still talking about missions. They're still talking about preaching the gospel. That is illogical to go out and act as though the fullness of Gentiles is not here and to berate people for saying the fullness of the Gentiles is not here. When everybody is saved whom God is elected unto his salvation, it's why election is important. Then, then and only then this partial hardening will begin to be removed. You and I know that timeline very well. We know it as the tribulation. The tribulation will be during the tribulation and we could look at events in Revelation. We looked at Daniel. So I'm giving you even book reference for it, not simply views on the issue. But until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul says that he's revealing the mystery. He's revealing the mystery. So once that time is concluded, once that time is concluded, remember what I said He's, he's maintaining a distinction in their identity and timelines, not the salvation plan. Okay, I'm done with the Gentiles because we brought them all in. At that time, when that has taken place, now it's time to deal with Israel. And when that takes place, and it will certainly take place, it is marked off by the wholesale inclusion, the wholesale inclusion of Gentile salvation. And once it has concluded, and only at that time, then this partial hardening will be ended, resulting in visible, listen to this, visible remnant salvation. You won't have to make it up. You won't have to apologize for it. You won't have to say this is what God really meant by what he said. You will see actual Jews crying, falling on their faces in repentance, worshiping the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ himself. They're going to worship him. That is after the fullness of the Gentiles come in at wholesale. Well, aren't there some Jews being saved today? Yes, but not at wholesale. It's not a collective large group, relatively speaking, of Jews according to their tribes who are being saved. So therefore, the fullness of the Gentiles has not arrived. We are arriving to that point, but we have not arrived. I believe that this text, these verses, that's why I was so driven to, to pray in the beginning. I believe this is what puts an end to cruise ship Christianity. Where people are like, let's just kick our feet up and wait. Let's just wait for Jesus because, now that is our hope, but because the church is, the church is one. The church is dominated. Or let's continue to complain about the church while we're a part of the false church because the church isn't doing what she should. Well, you need to go to the text and see, well, what should the church be doing? And am I in a place that should readily identify itself as a church? And so my point here is, is that we know that our work is not done until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You and I may pass away and may not experience this for ourselves. But in the duration of our life, the work is done from an individual standpoint. But collectively concerning the church, our work isn't done until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. It's not done. We don't usher in God's plan. We see to it that his plan is executed. We see to it. He's initiated the plan, but he gives us the orders. So Paul also gives that reason I told you. You will not be wise in your own estimation. I want to wrap it up here. I want to finish it here. But this is the reason why he why he revealed the mystery to the Romans, to the Gentiles, to us. It's so that we will not be wise in our own estimation. And we could spend so much time on that phrase alone because there's so much to that phrase. But listen, to be wise in your own estimation is, as we've said, 
It's to think that God needs us to erase his timeline and draw up our own. So I don't need to stand up here and preach God's timeline. I just preach scholarly views and what everybody thinks and the latest conference I travel to and what the latest and, and most contemporary evangelical mindset is concerning the topic. And I get up and I talk about that. But no, because that's erasing God's timeline. And that's drawing up my own timeline. And I'm not saying that there aren't faithful people in the realm of scholarship who agree with this. And praise God that they do, but they're not the standard. The Bible's the standard. The Apostle Paul is the, st- is the standard because he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And therefore, the standard is canon. It's not even Paul in and of himself. It's the power of God coming through Paul. And so I say this. To be wise in your own estimation is also to explain away Israel. It's to explain away Israel with these philosophical and emotional quotes, ideas, sound bites. It's to explain away Israel. Or to arrogantly and sarcastically when people are trying to ask you questions about who is Israel because you don't study and you can't answer it. You just come up with all these. Just You just start dumping people with whatever was the last chapter you read in some book. That's to be wise in your own estimation. And I believe we can see that. You can see that pretty clearly now. But the partial hardening and eventual salvation, listen to this. The partial hardening and eventual eventual salvation of the remnant shows us the wisdom of God. So why would we not tell these things forward? It shows us the wisdom of God. Why? Because Christ is the power and wisdom of God. So we're putting forward Christ when we talk about remnant salvation, when we talk about Gentile salvation. We talk about Israel. We talk about Gentiles. We're talking about Christ. And that's where Paul started in Romans chapter one. Well, why? Because Christ will bring it to pass. So then this partial hardening will take place whereby the Jews will be in a stupor until there is wholesale elect salvation. They'll be in a stupor. Explaining the true Israel in the previous verses, we are then clear what it says here. And we'll focus on this next verse next time. All Israel will be saved. Verse 26. Until the until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the second part of the mystery revealed. And so all Israel will be saved. And then he goes into what is written concerning. it. But all Israel will be saved. Paul reveals the who. The who here. True Israel, saved Israel, elect Israel, remnant Israel. You you notice something? Paul is speaking with certainty. Not potentiality, not hypotheticals. Certainty. All Israel will be saved. Every single Jewish person? No. We just got done in all the chapters telling you who Israel is. And I say that with humility before the Lord. So not every Jew will be saved. That's Paul Ho's argument. But all elect remnant Israel will be saved. All the Jews whom God intended to save will be saved. And so Paul says who will save them in verses 26 and 27. We'll look at next time and how they will be saved. And as we peek forward just slightly, they will be saved by a deliverer from Zion who will take away all ungodliness from Jacob. Let's pray. 